The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Welcome to a new episode of Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. I'm Reinhard Schunacher, and I'm joined by my second host today, Irvin Decker. Hi, Irvin. Hi, Reinhard. Good to see you and talk to you again. Good to see you. This time we do it over Zoom so we can actually see each other. This is uh, neat. Um, so today we have actually two guests. So it's kind of unusually crowded at our podcast today. Um, these guests are Stefan Kolev and Mark McAdam. Stefan is a professor of political economy at the University of Applied Sciences in Zwickau, Germany. And Mark is a PhD student and research assistant at the University of Siegen, also in Germany. And the reason why we have gathered both of them here is that they recently edited a special issue of the Journal of Contextual Economics, which published translations of eight seminal papers from within German economics between 1890 and 1940. In fact, Irvin was the third editor for this special issue, so his role today is somewhat in between host and guest, I suppose. Um, let me give you a little bit of background um, on this project. These papers, these eight papers were all translated for the first time uh, in the issue of the Journal of the Contextual Economics. And they originally appeared all in the journal that is commonly now known as Schmollers Jahrbuch. This journal was founded already in 1871. Ten years later, Schmoller himself became the editor. And in 1913, the journal became, uh, got the prefix Schmoller's Jahrbuch to honor Schmoller's longstanding editorship. And in 2016, the journal was relaunched in its current form as Schmoller's Jahrbuch Journal of Contextual Economics. So this is the journal these eight articles were translated for. Um, and I have to say, in the late 19th and early 20th century, Schmollers Jahrbuch was one of the leading economics journals, not only in Germany, but internationally. And there was a time when German was widely used as a language within science in general and economics in particular, and when English was not yet the dominating language of economics that it is today. But um, now let me introduce our guests briefly. So, or welcome our guests briefly. Stefan, it is great to have you with us on Cetrus Peribus. Hello. Thank you for the invitation, Reinhardt. Great to see you. And we are equally happy to welcome Mark. Hi, Mark. Hi, Reinhardt. Great to be here. So, I already mentioned um, your issue includes eight seminal papers um, written, to be precise, between 1896 and 1938. Three of them were written by well-known economists, at least today well-known, namely Gustav, uh, Gustav von Schmoller himself, Joseph Sumpeter and Walter Eucken. The other five authors might be well less known uh, today. They are Georg Simmel, Alexander Leist, Karl Diel, Ferdinand Tönnies and Leopold von Wiese. So let me um, ask you first, Stefan, Mark and also Erwin, what was the goal of this special issue and how and why did you select these eight articles among, I suppose, hundreds, possibly more than a thousand articles of this period? Maybe, Stefan, you want to go first. Thank you. Well, 
to begin with, it was a very long journey. So uh, a journey probably which both the three of us and uh, my co-editors of the journal in general underestimated grossly. So uh, it took much, much longer than we initially thought it would. Um, the journal is indeed, as you said, something quite curious if you look at its history. Um, unfortunately, it's not on JSTOR, even though we hope uh, that at some point soon it might get there. So uh, it's not fully available in, a, in the digital form. There are some volumes on archive.org, but otherwise we had to, first of all, have a look at the bibliography of the journal and uh, we're pretty amazed by the plenty, not just of authors, but really also of themes. So the initial idea was something like a best of, uh, but we pretty often, uh, pretty soon realized that, well, that's uh, not a very humble task, uh, given that you have papers on technical economics, you have papers on history, you have papers on um, all kinds of things. And so at some point we said, well, let's try to focus on something which we then called socioeconomics. And by that we then said that eight papers would be a good number. And uh, yeah, if you want, we can talk specifically about uh, the ones, but I think the selection should basically represent uh, that research program as we see it in the late 19th and early 20th century in German economics. And that's what we thought could be a, not a best of, that's again, probably not feasible to say, but uh, a good selection to get a sense of that research program. Yeah, I, I, I vividly remember Stefan sending me an email that it would take no longer than three months and that we would quickly have it out. And uh, so uh, that proved more like three years. But, uh, you know, I think also, um, in a sense, it represents for us an attempt to uh, to bridge something between uh, America and uh, Europe, um, where we feel that there's a <clears throat> there's an intellectual tradition, parts of which have migrated quite successfully. Um, Stefan and I have both studied the Austrian school before, and parts of which have been mostly left behind. I think this is one of the, the key questions why so, so few of these economists sometimes um, have survived in our collective memory. And two of the people you mentioned, right, uh, Simmel and Tunis, of course, simply migrated to another discipline. So they are now founding fathers in sociology rather than in economics. So that's also how they are remembered and why they um, have sort of disappeared from our collective memory. But that, of course, tells you important things about uh, the, the different way in which these disciplines were understood at the time. So that was another, I think, key reason for, uh, for me to contribute to the project. I think I might just add because I mean, having picked up on this in part, but you know, focusing on the the bridging the geographical is one aspect. But then this really does provide an opportunity, at the very least, as well, of br bridging disciplinary boundaries. And so I think we see we see very clearly here um, that it's kind of en vogue when you think about PPE, modern PPE perspectives, and so forth. Is you're you're talking about bridging. Uh, different boundaries, knowing that each boundary, each discipline has its has its respective blind spot, and looking, examining some of the classics here that kind of fall into that tradition was something that uh, we think turned out to be really valuable. Great, thank per you. Uh, sorry. Perhaps as a small marketing kick, which we should be open about in the beginning, we really hope that by translating the papers, and by uh, promoting uh, them to our community as historians of economics. The journal as it is today should also perhaps be, become, as we hope, more attractive 
for submissions from our field. And you published also an accompanying um, introductionary uh, essay, the, the three of you. This is entitled Methods for Understanding Economic Change, Socioeconomics and German Political Economy. So the overarching theme seems to be, and you mentioned that already, Stefan, socioeconomics. Can you briefly explain what this term means? Um, what 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 were what were the topics, the themes these authors um, share with each other? So it's one of the many sometimes curious names of economics in Germany at the time. Uh, we mentioned uh, probably all of them, but we are not even quite sure. So it can be national economy, it can be volkswirtschaftsbereich, it can be social economic, etc. What we found important to underscore in the topic and in the title already is really that um, the German society, uh, which uh, most of those authors are living in, is actually going through a fundamental transition compared to today's globalization of the transition processes in many countries. So as we see it, socioeconomics, with that perspective on the economy, is an order within society which is emerging but is not quite there unlike perhaps in England at a time where the economy was already uh, present in the sense that it could be theorized like it was in Ricardian economics. So those were societies and those were societies where the economy was taking shape as a differentiated order within society, but which still could not be treated. And as we see, perhaps should also not be treated today as something isolated, but something which is interdependent to law, to the order of the state, to the order of science, to the order of religion. So I think that is um, probably, if we should call one thing essential, that's probably the essential characteristic. So having societies in transition and theorizing their specific economic order in its emergence, that's I think might be the best way to capture it. Yeah, again, this is this is quite well captured by um, by one of the authors that is known in sociology, right? There, in sociology, it's common to th to speak of a sort of mo modernization thesis, and then that's associated, among other things, with the Gesellschaft und Gemeinschaft difference, so the difference between sort of communal life and um, modern societal life. Um, and I think what what Stefan here highlights is that the economy might have underwent a similar transformation in which it was basically uh, embedded in very regional uh, social structures and part of community life and then it emerged out of that and uh, it did so in um, in germany quite um, abruptly and quite violently in, in 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 some in some senses because the country was made to modernize so the the way in which these processes were interlinked was very um crucial i think for for the way that economists uh, or social scientists of the time analyzed the situation and perhaps the fact that this was much smoother in england or perhaps the fact that it had already been completed in the 19th century um, makes for a quite different type of analysis and then yeah we of course have termed it um, um, methods for analyzing economic change right so then the question is um when is this embeddedness or the relation between society and economics most uh, visible? And um, when do we need these tools most? 
and our suggestion is that you need them um, much more in periods of very serious transformations that are going on in society. One might currently think about digitization, right, which has consequences for uh, where people work, how people work. It has consequences for um, relationships within the family. It has uh, consequences um, for the uh, um, um, connection between regional and global. And so these type of transformations, I think, are also undergo uh, under underway in the second half of the 19th century in 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 Germany, and a lot of these social scientists are reflecting on that and trying to make sense of these 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 major changes. And perhaps the East European in me would like to add that this was not a German exceptionality, right? So this was not uh, a Sonderweg of Germany catching up. It was basically everybody catching up uh, outside of England or perhaps France. So, and that's probably part of the success story of the historical school um, in Eastern Europe, in Southern Europe, in Japan, in the US, which were all, uh, as Erwin said, late uh, comers uh, in terms of industrialization and in terms of this differentiation within society. So um, it happened in Germany, but again, it was met with lots of sympathy and with lots of reception in all of those regions, which I just mentioned. And most of these authors that you translated, or all of them can be seen as being part or at least highly influenced by the so-called German historical school. And this school nowadays is presented in a very simplified, possibly misleading way, most best known for the uh, Methodenstreit between Schmoller and Menger. And it is usually argued that the historical school was all about the uh, empirics, empirical investigations, empirics without theory, and this is an accusation, both the, as you write uh, in the introduction, essay, both uh, by the Austrian, uh, by Austrian economists, as well as neoclassical economists. Also, there are barely any historical school economists or none left, so they can't really defend themselves. But what you're showing here is also that the German historical school was, was much more complex. It is also not true that there was no theory. They were they had a strong theoretical program, but also there was a lot of disagreement within. It was not a unified uh, school. There was there were different strands in the school, right? So this is also kind of uh, what you're doing to to set the record straight on the historical school, if I understand you correctly, right? Maybe you want to say something about uh, the historical school more general. Well, of course, it's even contested whether such a thing existed. Uh, and uh, I think it's not absurd to ask the question. Uh, of course, if we say that it started somewhere in the 1840s or 50s and uh, extended until the 1940s or 50s, as some people have claimed, including order liberalism as the youngest historical school, that's quite a long period, right? So you need really lots and lots of continuity, not just in terms of substance, but also in terms of structural and social cohesion to claim that such a thing existed. Um, I do find the term interesting. I do find the term operational in some senses, but uh, we should be skeptical, um, certainly um, about uh, such a long period and those divisions which exist between older, younger and youngest may also be contested, but perhaps help to get some heterogeneity at least period-wise uh, because of the generations and because of course the professionalization of economics, uh, which of course in the 1840s was uncomparable, let's say to the 1920s. So uh, the term helps, 
but it can also um, it can also disguise quite a few ambiguities which are uh, within that big, big, big hundred years so-called school. If, if, if I can add to that, right, the, the first thing that's remarkable is that none of these papers is empirical. Now, that might be, of course, our, our fault in the sense that we didn't select for any empirical papers. And you might say that to a certain extent, empirical papers uh, might age a little bit less well or might be of, of less interest to read 150 years later. So I think that played into it. But I, I do think that all of these uh, papers are very, very serious theorizing. But the theorizing, um, in an important sense, I think struggles with this problem that society is changing so much that they're unclear whether the forms are stable enough to measure something over time. And so they're all the time worrying, and I think this is really true for all the authors, to what extent the forms are sufficiently stable in order to generalize about these forms and in order to operationalize them and ultimately uh, measure. Uh, their characteristics. And yeah, you see this uh, this theme coming up in, in trying to define capitalism. You see it, uh, them uh, trying to define the economy in different ways. Um, but it also even shows for them in the sense of the future. So they, they are very uncertain about what the future will look like. So in that sense, there's also instability and uncertainty forward looking. So they're, they're not quite sure what form the future will have. And if you're qualitatively uncertain about what form the future will have, then studying current trends might not make as much sense as it would when you think, well, we're, we're now, um, right, um, liberal democratic capitalist societies, we want to study the growth rate because we're going to have growth of the same time for another 10, 20 years. That makes sense. And and that's that's very much up for debate. So they think that the form is qualitative, qualitatively changing throughout the period and will continue to do so in the periods um, going forward. So if there's anything historical about it, it's this crucial question that how permanent are economic forms and how much do they change over time? So what what is the essence of capitalism and are there internal changes in this concept of capitalism and are we going to have capitalism in 20 years and did we have it 50 years before or 100 years before and if we say so, what does it mean to say that? Now, of course, these are crucial theoretical questions, right? They're anything but empirical. In fact, the empirical would only follow if you are somewhat successful in defining the form, because then you could try to measure the characteristics of the form. And in some sense, you see many of the authors struggling with even uh, finding the form. It's, it's well expressed in the title of um, of Smoller's article that we selected, right? Uh, changing theories and fixed truths in um in in, in economics i think if, if i might just add at that point to the article that Avin just mentioned you know it's very difficult to um when one actually reads this uh to come away saying you know there's there's no theory in the so-called historical school i mean it's 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 one of those things where you think the kind of the accusations that have been leveled against the stream of thought um, they're kind of belied by uh, some of the some of the stuff that just simply hasn't been published yet. You know, I think that was one of the one of the motivations here for for making this available too is that it does um, it does provide kind of a more fuller picture to the English speaking audience as well. Um, that's 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 one point. Um, and the another another is simply just taking into account this 
um, the, the, the question of historicity, really, in terms of um, societal development as well, is that there's certainly a, um, there's a connection to be drawn, in my estimation at the very least, to you know, questions of um, path dependence that we have in more, in, in, in more contemporary discussions as well. It's not to say that path dependence leads to path determinacy, but that the question of path dependence and what history actually means uh, in terms of the societal outcomes, including the economic outcomes that we have, is actually really important. Yeah, this, this also crucially shapes the reception of the English classical political economists in Germany, right? Because they're all the time worried whether the English theories are applicable. So whether Germany's experience is historically different from the experience in, uh, in England and to what extent the general truths about England can be extended geographically. And that's crucially a, a historical question. Perhaps adding to that, I think Schumpeter's paper on Schmoller, which was one of the most difficult to translate also because of its gigantic length, makes this curious point, which of course today is widely known that American institutionalism or institutionalism in general uh, can also and should also be seen as a baby of that school, right? So as Erin said, that struggle for institutional embeddedness or disembeddedness and that struggle for knowing which institutions and which institutions over time matter mostly as captured by the what we would call today the old institutionalism in the US can also I think be perhaps a way to for some of our audience to to understand that uh, trajectory just as a side note there too it's there's <laughs> at the time the we started with articles in 1896 um tr translating articles from 1896 in this project and by this point i mean going back at least to the 1870s there was a long tradition of leading american academics coming to germany to to study staatswissenschaften in essence and uh, it was you know, seen as a premier place uh, to receive um, a more advanced education. And so you'd have lots of uh, figures also who are associated with the original institutionalism in the United States, who actually had spent significant time in seminar rooms in, in German universities. And the American Economic Association basically becoming a copy of uh, Schmoller's Verein für Sozialpolitik as the founders of the AEA officially say in the founding documents. Great, then um, maybe to, you translated these works, I guess you, you clearly see some, some value, maybe not only historically in it, are there any lessons um, that are still, maybe still be applicable from, from these works for today? Some interesting themes or uh, trains of thought that, that have been lost and maybe should be revived. I mean, you already alluded to it, I think, also Irvin in early on, but do you think the, the relevance for today could uh, economists today um, a profit from reading these old old texts, maybe. Can I go first on that question? Because I th I think this crucially depends on what type of questions you ask. So yes, if you think that Robinson and Asimoglu uh, ask key questions in economics. Yes, if you think that PPE 
uh, as political uh, politics, philosophy, and economics is a path forward in economics. But what crucially this period demonstrates is that the question, the type of questions being pursued were different from the type of questions that were uh, pursuing um, today. So they were really questions about trying to make sense of well, the course of history, I, I, I realize now that this, this word history can be interpreted in a, in, a, in a number of ways that give a different meaning to the historical school that than it traditionally receives, right? But it asks these questions that are relevant for a 50 to 100 year time span, um, rather than a question, relatively mundane questions. And that has a little bit to do with the selection, because I think that is where Steph, Stefan, Mark and I um, really did make the selection more for for this, this type of article, like Mark was saying, this was also the time in which Staatswissenschaften was important and those were uh, also part of that were more mundane questions about how to solve what was known as the social question at the time. So they were more uh, direct policy questions. And I think the set of readings that we have selected here do really speak to sort of socioeconomic change in a 50 to 100 year time span. And so if, if it's that type of questions, as well as the sort of macro importance of institutions in the economy, then yes, uh, there's uh, lots of gems in this material. Um, if you're uh, asking questions about individual choice, um, then I don't think there's there's this mu that much to learn from this set of readings, at least. Right? I would like to add something um, regarding the topicality. So um, when the journal was called uh, Journal of Contextual Economics in 2016. Uh, there is an introduction uh, by my co-editors. I was not there yet, but uh, the three of them wrote an introduction and made that important. And I, I think interesting point of saying that contextual economics might be the opposite of isolating economics. Uh, and the difference would be, historically speaking, that we have periods of time where the configurations within society are sort of stable and we have periods of time in history when uh, those configurations are more shaky and more, um, more fuzzy. And so probably, uh, as they make the point, uh, isolating economics of the type which Erwin said in terms of uh, choice, maximization, and the things which came up, let's say, with the Samuelsonian revolution are better suited or more topical in stable times. Whereas uh, those contextual issues, which we are discussing now about the late 19th century, are more topical in times when a societal uh, transformation, like for example, Eastern Europe, uh, the Bulgaria I grew up in in the 1990s, uh, can learn a lot from those um, from those papers. Or the Arab Revolution and what happened in the Middle East and Northern Africa. Um, those types of dynamisms, I think. Um, and periods of history and geography like that can profit uh, quite a bit from this, uh, from this uh, theorizing of society and economy the way those people do it. Can I so ask what- Perhaps maybe just, just to put a brief, just to, just to add one small thing to what Stefan just said. Um, and in essence, what you're describing Stefan too is that this, these are processes of transformation. I think that's really the that's one of the the key the key things to kind of put out there is that when when society tends to be in a state of flux, you know things are <laughs> all things are not equal as the name of this podcast is um, is um, such that you know coming out of a system in which 
the Soviet Union is no longer there means that there is a political transformation occurring where institutions suddenly become very important in, in, the, in the academy as well. And we, we have these time periods where we, where we are, um, where we encounter a significant political transformation. And um, this is one of the things that certainly was a significant influence for many of the authors that we translated in this project as well. Yeah, it makes you also think of, of what sort of uh, economics you need at various points in time, right? That, that the 1990s were, of course, a, a period of sort of universalism in the West, also as a sort of triumphant sense that they, right, that their their truths were indeed universal truths. And so they started spreading them at precisely at a moment when parts of other parts of the world were going through major transformation periods. So they needed these sort of theories that were much more attuned to, to major social change rather than uh, social stability. But, yeah. Can I ask what the biggest surprise was to you guys in the in the translation? Because I know that I only mostly did more did proofreading than 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 translating. So you must have spent even more time with the with the particular author. But what was the biggest surprise? The eye opener. Well, the biggest surprise was how laborious it was. I think that uh, <laughs> now laborious puts a, a negative tone to it. But um, I mean, this is moving away from content for a moment, taking taking your question into a little bit of a different direction. But I never would have assumed that it would it would have been so time time consuming and uh, encompassing in a way as it as it turned out to be. Well. Adding to that, uh, we should we should add that two of the papers were not translating by us, right? So, but by Karen Horn and Hazel James. But uh, we had to go. Oh, let's start with the with the German characters to begin with, right? So, scanning the stuff, transforming the old German characters into normal characters of today, might be looked at as a trivial uh, two clicks type of job, uh, but it was far from that. I mean, my research assistants had a quite a horrible time uh, doing that. And then we had tons of versions of uh, the six papers, which we had to uh, translate. Um, Mark even flew over to Duke uh, somewhere in December to uh, spend a whole week tete-a-tete. -tete. The Zoom age was not there yet to uh, really struggle with all those Germanic sentences, which can go over like eight, eight lines. And uh, we were always struggling with how much do we keep um, and how much do we have to intervene so that it becomes readable. So, uh, and uh, I mean, to some extent we are all fluent in German, but 19th century German also turned out to be quite specific and Zimmel's 19th century German turned out to be even more specific. So. Um, Surprises added up to something which, uh, I mean, it's a sizable book, right? So it's like 180 pages or so, but uh, would have been easier to write the 180 pages as opposed to translate them. <laughs> I don't, I don't believe we had digital copies, did we? we no, got no, no, scans. We got scans from the, from from the the volumes from way back from yesteryear, and uh, the. The characters are not in are not modern day characters, so they're the the, the Frakturschrift as it's known in German, and so there was this process of translating them 
um, in a way to, to make them um, readable in modern day characters as well. And the, the following, the, the step that we, we attempted with all of the papers, it worked with some, it didn't work with others, is that we actually submitted them to a language translation software and we ran them through the language transit uh, translation software um, just to kind of see where we were at and whether this would be at all be useful in 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 any way and uh in some instances things kind of worked in other instances things didn't work at all and that's then really when the when the translation process began and the translation process as we had adopted it was um, using the, I mean, on the one hand, going through the translation that the language software DeepL had provided. So we, in these cases, we had an English uh, bl blueprint in quotation marks, if you so will, uh, if you will, um, uh, based on which we could make some initial assessments, whether this was in any way helpful to, to our procedure or not. But then the, the process of translating really begun, um, going from German into English. This was followed later by a back translation going from English back to German. And then in a final third stage, kind of going through the um, English version and trying, trying to check it for readability. Does this actually make sense? And in those, in those cases where we really had some stumbling blocks, we would then go back and um, check the, the, the German English translation to make sure that on the one hand, we, we strove for readability, but we really wanted to make sure, make sure that the translations were, were accurate as well. And I think, so Stefan's hinted at it or alluded to a few things that proved to be difficulties in that, but I remember arguing with you in certain ways about certain words you know there'd be there'd be single words and it's kind of like well what if we use this word in english and then well that evokes this sentiment but he doesn't really want to evoke that sentiment and so you know that well we i don't really want to use that word because this that's not really fitting either and it's too much of a, a mod, the connotation that it has in modern language doesn't really apply to what is trying to be what is what is trying to be communicated in this this step here and so i think for me that this was this was the most surprising thing to me to get back to your initial question, Avin, is that there's, it was a, it was a very intense um, process of trying to figure out the little things too, and, and really trying to understand, okay, well, you know, going back to word choice, going down to, okay, well, are we going to try to maintain the style of the writing to a certain degree, which we did, um, or which we attempted at the very least, um, and what does that actually mean for the translations that we're, we're, we're using now? And so um, it may not seem like that because there's a finished product right now, but there really was um, just a, a lot of deliberation about many of the, the really, really small, small decisions in that process. Perhaps a brief addition. So the most controversial things where we spent the most time of arguing and uh, were struggling and doubting and being skeptical, we decided to use annotations. So each paper has uh, a set of annotations where we reproduce the German original in the end notes to the paper. And also from the beginning, it was clear and the publisher helped us with that, uh, that we published also the German originals on the website. So uh, everybody can check 
whether we did a decent job by, again, either looking at the end notes to the paper and or by checking the German original, uh, which is a PDF freely available on the website. And now to the content. What was the most surprising thing? What, what, what did you learn that you didn't, that, that, that opened your eyes to something that you weren't aware of before, of this period or these, these set of authors? Well, I have to say that it sort of uh, came parallel to our joint research project with Erwin, which was already ongoing about uh, the historical school. So my background is that I come from order liberalism, so I'm from that youngest historical school, and uh, it felt like going back in time. I have to say that I was um, surprised to see many, many similarities to what I had been doing in my older project. So uh, it indeed turns out to be true that uh, the order liberals, but also, let's say, they were the Hayek generation, so even quite a few things in Hayek actually resonate extremely well with those, with those texts. Uh, so, um, as we mentioned earlier, I think it helped me personally to debunk quite a bit of the myths about the historical school, which I had myself in my mind. The most helpful paper being Schumpeter's paper on Schmoller, which of course, as a specific history, it was, it was written by Schumpeter when he got to Bonn, and so might be discounted for some uh, perhaps over uh, laudatory tones to Schmoller because it was sort of contracted by Adolf Spithoff. But I think that was uh, an extremely interesting paper to just realize how simplistic many of the current myths about uh, German political economy actually are and how easy it is to debunk them if you have a look at such a paper. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the paper on Eucken, right, which is most clearly the order liberal paper, actually defends the historical school against some of the historicists, right? So, so that's, I think, one thing that from a distance you certainly wouldn't expect because you think, okay, right, we know, um, we know the Austrian work, we even know Popper and his emphasis on overcoming historicism. And so, in, but, but Eucken doesn't say, well, he does say we have to overcome overcome historicism, but then the excesses of historicism, the, the sort of extreme versions of historicism, and actually go back to the older historical awareness that had a sense of uh, progress or a sense of direction, I think, uh, versus the more relativistic versions of it. But so you see that that's an internal debate. Therefore, I also think that the term school, in some sense, to me, doesn't work because there were communists in this school, well, socialists at the very least, perhaps not communists, but there were socialists in this school. There were social democrats in this school, in modern parlance. There were liberal, liberal socialists in this school, and there were liberals in this school. So it was much more a framework for thinking of this period of time, right? Um, in the same sense that perhaps in neoclassical economics, you have all these different political uh, flavors, but it's such a, a broad house overall that everybody and can fit in. And so it's a framework um, framework for thinking and also a framework for debate, right? It's the shared shared sense that they have, but within it, you have lots of eternal disputes. And so you don't, you don't have any type of um, <clears throat> a set of principles that you have to adhere to before you, you, you enter it, uh, unless you zoom out very, very much in a sense. <laughs> Also, somewhat biased based on some of the some of the the secondary literature that's out there. I was, I think, probably just most surprised to find um, 
Shmona's paper, which we translate as actually his inaugural lecture on uh, arising on, on becoming um, the chancellor of the University of Berlin in 1897, I believe. And it's it's one of those things where um, if if you know or if you read in the secondary literature that this is you know this tends to be an atheoretical endeavor an atheoretical enterprise, you read this and you kind of think to yourself, how in the world know could could this could this be communicated in such a way in in the the secondary literature and um, I think that's one of the things that um, that uh, I kind of came to terms with anew in in this process and I mean in, incidentally I've you know I've used this example actually in my teaching too and trying to tell students how important it is to read um, a primary texts as well is to um, you know to to, to um, to a certain degree, just challenge some of the received wisdoms that we've we've gotten that's been that have been passed down in, in secondary literature. I mean, that text is fascinating because he presents it as a synthesis, right? So we we remember it as an extreme version that perhaps might be something of an input to a synthesis between an empirical approach and a theoretical approach. And Smaller does quite the opposite, right? He says, well, okay, so 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 there's policy and there's everyday concerns, uh, and then there's science and 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 what uh, or the, the the sort of too universalistic science that that isn't uh, quite applicable. But what we're searching for is a sort of synthesis between these these two extremes and. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That to me also, uh, it's it's a it's a very good one. It's also to me, it's it's also fascinating because it's 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 one of these moments in which people feel that they have reached um, a synthesis, right? And I think there are interesting moments in which this happens in science, and you 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 can ident identify a couple. I think Robbins retrospectively has been identified as such a, such a moment, right? The the 30s, but more so for the, the post-war program. So the post-war program also has its sort of moment of, of self-confidence that, okay, this is this is the new approach and this is the accepted approach and we're gonna move forward from here. And Smolo also has, has that that sort of tone over it, that it represents, okay, from now on, we, we've, we've integrated, we can leave the old disputes behind us and we have now sufficient consensus to start building and being constructive, constructive. So therefore, it's, I think it's also an, an, an interesting starting point. So if there is one article you would most recommend to readers, or which was, was your favorite article, which would that be? I hope you have different ones, otherwise this will be a short question, but maybe uh, let's start with Stefan. Which one is your, the one you like most of those articles and why? Um. Since I knew Eucken's paper quite well, that was not the one which which like uh, took me by surprise or which shocked me in a positive sense. It really is Schumpeter's paper. Uh, so Schumpeter uh, talking about Schmoller, of course, also talking about himself, not only about Schmoller, uh, but it's also um, I think it's an amazing achievement, starting with criticizing Wesley Mitchell, talking about implicitly, of course, also the Austrians. Um, showing a super interesting person like Schumpeter in a crucial moment of his life. Uh, so that was that was amazing uh, and painful uh, to uh, to translate, but uh, the content warranted the paint, the pain. 
There's some masochism then in 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 that sentiment yeah. itself. Quite a bit, or uh, yeah, uh, sadism. If I send it over to you, and then you have to to uh, redo three pages. Yeah, it's part of the game. Yeah. So for me, Mark, what for, was for, yours? me for me, I would say I think it was just based on my own research interests. It was probably the article by by Georg Zimmer, um, and the the focus there really is on the importance of interdependence. And so he has this example of um, talking about the Industrial Revolution and uh, the, the Industrial Revolution, the uh, development, the, the invention of the steam engine and um, occurred based on a regime of private property. And uh, we, we take these institutions for granted and just kind of assume, well, you know, or I shouldn't say we, but too, too frequently, institutions are taken for, for granted and are not, are not considered in um, analyzing social phenomena. And he really has an acute awareness of uh, understanding kind of how different institutions are interdependent, uh, how they rely on one another. And on this very concrete example, says something to the effect of had the regime of private property not existed, but had there been um, had there been another institution, we also would have had a different outcome. And I think that's just based on what I'm interested in in, in my own research, that was um, something that spoke to me most. And Evan? Well, I'll go for, for, for I guess, the, the, one of the more marginal pieces that we have. I think we have one uh, from, from a list on, on Carl Savigny and Adam Smith, which is which is somewhat marginal. But the other one, I think, is Leopold von Wiese, who I think is, a, is an interesting uh, scholar from mostly the 1920s and the 30s. So he's toward the end of, end of our period. But what um, is happening in his piece is literally the separation of economic theory and economic sociology. Um, and so he, he really demonstrates how things, right? You could say that in a certain sense, the historical school or this period is messy because the domain of about which they theorize is not clearly delineated. And so they struggle with that. And so you see it toward the beginning of the, 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 the or in the 1920s and the 1930s, you see sort of specialization happening. So it's something that happens in the profession, but you also see it crystallize in sort of the, uh, dom domains that they start to delineate. Um, and so they start saying, well, economic theory is really only about this. Uh, somewhat reminiscent, I think, of what, what people might might know from Hayek, a sort of domain of pure theory, a logic of choice um, that doesn't contain the institutions um, and the social conditions at a certain period of time. And then there's economic sociology, and it also has theory, but it has theory of a different, a different type. And so that, to me, I think, because it helps you so much to think about uh, interdisciplinarity and disciplinary boundaries and also the functionality of disciplinary boundaries that to me that is most helpful in a sort of constructive sense in thinking also about what modern contextual economics might be and and could be and and whether it requires a division of labor and if it also requires integration how that integration would take place and I think that article really uh, I think in the same sense that Marx says that Simmel tells you something about how you do historical explanation because it's basically an argument against mono monocausal or uh, right uh, type of explanations. I think this is this is a wonderful article to help you think about the relations between different types of disciplines, and also because I work currently 
often at the boundary between economic sociology, institutional economics, and economic theory. There's, there's a sort of sense in which that speaks to me quite directly. Can I briefly add something about Schumpeter, please, just very briefly? Um, I, was, I was curious when, when we started doing it, in what kind of a phase of his life did he write that? Because you read the paper and it strikes you as though somebody is like really in a mania. So somebody takes a seat and writes 52 pages uh, on somebody on whom he has been actually quite uh, dismissive in his young age. And if you read about Schumpeter in 1926, he was indeed in a mania. And then he plunged even into that gigantic depression because his life died and his, uh, his child died. So I think also looking at those people as persons, as living persons who have their ups and downs and sometimes very big ups and very big downs, that was also a curious test to really check when did that paper come about in what kind of a intersection of the life of the person. I want to ask uh, Stefan a little bit about the journal that it appeared in, um, right? Um, we talked about it briefly in the introduction of the podcast, um, but it's now called the Journal of Contextual Economics, correct? And it's a continuation of Smollers Jahrbuch, and, and what's its current scope? So we changed many, many names in the course of time. And yes, that's the most recent name. Um, I, so it's currently four co-editors, but it's changing to five. So one is dropping out and two are joining us. Uh, Pete Betke and Steve Ziliak are joining us starting from next year. Um, it is published in a small but very traditional Berlin publisher, Dunker and Humblot, uh, where the Journal was always published from 1871, so that's part of the tradition. The publisher has been very supportive um, in many ways, also that uh, the papers are still available, open access-like. We try, so we co-editors of the journal, try to promote the journal as a journal, which is very much, which, which we hope can be attractive for people working in institutional economics, cultural economics, constitutional political economy on the one hand, and then, of course, people doing historical research that can be history economics or more generally speaking, history of the social sciences. Um, it is one of those journals which is struggling, to be quite honest, for submissions. So it's we are not blessed uh, with hundreds of submissions per year. And Mark is doing an amazing job as the managing editor. Um, but uh, I think... And that was certainly a part of the project, as we mentioned in the beginning, trying to internationalize the journal, trying to build bridges to, to both the Anglophone world and to disciplines outside the narrow uh, boundaries of economics might perhaps help us to, um, to make the journal an attractive outlet. Uh, the trends, both in terms of submissions and in terms of uh, I think the, the format of the journal is certainly uh, certainly very positive and uh, I hope that it will continue. Um, the, next, uh, the next big project, which is coming out really in the very next two or three weeks is a gigantic special issue on the Kolokliman with 14 papers, uh, which were uh, to a large extent the, the result of a conference which we had on the 80th anniversary of the Kolokliman in 2019 in Tübingen. So that is forthcoming. Then we have a special issues forthcoming on uh, Deidre McCloskey, another one on Max Weber, because it's the 100th anniversary of Max Weber's passing. So with those, we would really like to show both contemporary scholars like Deidre and uh, luminaries like Weber, who also published in Schmonach's Jahrbuch, that, uh, yeah, 
it's a journal with a big history and hopefully with uh, probably not as big future, but with a with a livable future that is attractive to several audiences. I might just add at this point that um, you know, Stefan mentioned some of the the, the economic uh, fields or areas in which we from from which we receive most of our submissions. But really, this is also something that had this journal has an openness towards a multidisciplinary dialogue as well. So we had staying in the theme of kind of economics research, we had a special issue a couple of years back on development economics, where all of the submissions really um, placed an emphasis on what context actually meant in, in their respective uh, articles and in what it means for, for development economics as well. Um, there were there was a submission by an economic anthropologist there. Uh, Abby, you've mentioned kind of the link to economic sociology as well. And so all of these fields, um, they certainly have uh, the, I mean, they, they certainly um, have, have the promise of taking uh, context, having taking different institutions also into account and really placing them or considering them as a very, very essential element of, of, um, the, of, of the research that's, that's occurring there. And so I think that beyond the, the very narrow economic, um, what's, what's the right way of putting this, I guess, the, the narrow scope of it merely being um, a, a journal for, for um, economists, we're also interested in this multidisciplinary dialogue. So we're more than open to having um, people who are coming in from, from neighboring disciplines and are interested in exactly these questions that we've been discussing here uh, to submit their work too, because I mean, in the end, all of the uh, editors, um, at least starting next year, uh, all of the editors are, are all economists and the field itself, of course, does have its blind spots as well. And so um, really opening this up to uh, other disciplines as well uh, to, to bring in additional perspectives is something that the journal is really open to. Stefan, can I follow up briefly on what you just said? Did Max Weber never publish in here because he no, seems no, he to be did. somehow uh, the, the missing uh, the missing figure? What's his relation to what's 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 happening in here? Well, uh, so Niels and I, Niels Goldschmidt and I, are currently writing an introduction to that forthcoming special issue. Now Weber did publish uh, that gigantic uh, three parts essay on Rocher and Knies in Schmalerzierbuch, uh, and also some smaller pieces, but uh, so. Rocher and Knies was um, contracted, roughly speaking, by Schmoller before Weber became the editor of his archive, of his Archiv of Wissenschaft und Sozialpolitik. And so from then onwards, Weber started publishing, roughly speaking, only in the Archiv. But we are lucky to have uh, Rocher and Knies publishing Schmoller-Zierbuch. They've, of course, been translated long ago, so it was not, a, not an option for us to translate. But uh, I think that is pretty, pretty, pretty important. It's one of the earliest papers of Weber after his nervous breakdown. And uh, we will highlight that into, in that introduction to the special issue that, uh, yes, we are proud to have them in the history of the journal. But can you say something intellectually about, because I know that you, you, you're currently researching Max Weber. Can you say something about how intellectually he relates to the set of papers that, that you've collected here? Well, 
I have to say I haven't thought directly about that, but my my immediate thought would be that certainly Weber, there is no doubt about that. I mean, otherwise he wouldn't have called his encyclopedia project Outline of Socioeconomics. Certainly he was, became one of the most um, prominent figures which are associated with that project, the socioeconomics. It's contested whether it was his idea or the publisher's idea to call the encyclopedia that way. His relationship to Schmoller and to the historical school has many tensions, but interesting people have tensions between them, so that's not a bad thing. Um, Schmoller was uh, more generous to Weber than the other way, I would say. Uh, he was supportive to the young Weber. He was supportive to um, to Weber after his problems. So um, I think the relationship between Weber on the one hand to the historical school, to the Austrians, but of course also to uh, those non-economists as we would see them today, uh, the burgeoning sociology is well reflected in the set of papers which we have. So um, it's a Weberian collection, certainly, or Weber I think would like uh, some of the papers, probably not all, he's not, referenced that often, which surprised me when we were doing papers, which perhaps also reflects that uh, notion that Weber became super, super big over the past decades, whereas during his lifetime, um, at, least, at least that's what people in Heidelberg said, his wife was more uh, widely known than he was. Um, but certainly he was part of that family. And as in any family, there were tensions and feuds and disputes and controversies, of course, about the value judgments, but also, also other ones. So I think it's, of course, very, uh, it's a Bulgarian speculation, but I think he would like what we did. I hope, I hope at least he would, yeah, I think so. And uh, I think he was also quite interested after his trips to the US, he was always super interested in of avoiding German Sonderwege, so avoiding German exceptionalities. And so that outreach to the non-German speaking world today, which we try to do with the translations is very much certainly in, the, in an operational sense, uh, also a Weberian enterprise. So let me maybe uh, look a bit into the future. I suppose you translated these works now and you won't necessarily leave it at this. Um, are you doing some follow-up? Are you having a broader research project on the, the whole issue? Or did you just want to publish them uh, and now move on to other topics? Well, let me perhaps say the translation. So for the, for the moment, no, I felt when we finished that in the summer that I'm done with that, but then another translation project came in, which uh, was the translation of Menger's uh, Errors of Historicism, which I only co-edited with Karen Horn, but it was done by the young affiliates of the News Network. So that came out and currently we are translating Schmoller's review of Menger's Errors of, histori uh, of Menger's um, uh, investigations. Um, so that is a translation project which is ongoing and it will come out, of course, as it should in Schmonach Siapuch. Erwin could perhaps say a couple of words about the larger project which we have, but yeah, translation has become a hobby, a painful hobby. It's a hobby certainly which is not greatly acknowledged by today's economic profession, but uh, 
think uh, I hope at least that historians will different things. So, uh, and by the way, the once we posted it on the shoe list and on other outlets, uh, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. So uh, that really was. Uh, so there were many, many super nice reactions by people. So yeah, I keep I keep translating. I mean, I'm not German really, but uh, somebody has to do the job. And uh, yeah, so Schmola on Menger is uh, forthcoming as the next translation. Yeah, f for me, it's a, it's it's also uh, something that continues to fascinate me in a research sense. So I I, um, I wrote my dissertation on the Austrian school, and um, and there I sort of let the Austrian school emerge out of the historical school in the uh, in the early chapters, which is somewhat different from the standard narrative. But um, I think, in some sense, might have also reflected my limited knowledge of. Uh, German economics at the time, and I, I really hope to to understand much better um, what that period is. And with Stefan, we're also thinking about um, sort of seeing what different types of economics come out of that. So rather than trying to find the essence of the historical school, um, more to think about um, what different um, strands of economics did come out of it. Because there's also uh, something that we didn't talk about at all, but the German statistical tradition um, that is quite different from, uh, say, um, what we think of now as uh, the, the birth of econometrics. It's much more sort of historical and um, um, over time statistical tradition. There's, of course, the influence on the American institutionalists that we have already talked about. Um, there's a sense in which uh, Max Weber, who we just talked about, uh, comes out of the school, perhaps not by um, accepting all its tenets, but by developing something in response to it. I think this is true for the Austrian school. So this is something that I think uh, Stefan and I want to pursue is, is more see it as a sort of constellation out of which different things grow. And that might also explain perhaps, perhaps that's, that's also what I, I try to emphasize with Visa is that this is a, a fascinating period for all the debates, but it's also in some sense, I think a period with actually not all that much consensus, especially not around 1900. I think it's hard to find a consensus then about what precisely this historical school is. So perhaps that's also explains why it doesn't have so many friends 30 years later already anymore. People who sort of uh, say, well, I'm, I'm continuing in this tradition, but it's more sort of, well, I don't know whether it's a bomb exploding, but perhaps it's just a very fertile seed that has a lot of offshoots. Uh, and these offshoots are, are quite different from one another. And so this is something that uh, I think we want to pursue to get a, yeah, perhaps a different way of looking at the school is not so much in, in terms of trying to define its essence, but much more in trying to define it as a sort of very fertile debate, which has been incredibly important in shaping modern economics, but has been forgotten because, yeah, people aren't speaking up for it or have felt that they have overcome it or moved away from it and so therefore have uh, sort of neglected uh, the tradition. Here that was very interesting. I can only recommend to readers to check out the the issue of the journal to read some of these very interesting old texts and also your um, introductory essay if they want to have an, an overview um, over these essays. So thank you very much Stefan, Mark, also Irvin for being part of Set was Never Paribus today. Thank you, Reinhardt. Right, thanks. thanks so much.